to the Event Production Show podcast. These sessions were recorded from our 2022 show and are now available for you to listen to on the move. This session is all about under the influence, societal issues of festivals fault, creating safe spaces. With the burden of responsibility placed on festival organisers where the root cause is actually societal issues such as drug use, illegal taxi ranks, touting, intoxication... How can event organisers work better with local authorities, officials and suppliers to minimise issues and create more understanding from media? Hello everyone that's joined us for the Graveyard Shift. Paul and I have been here before. <laughs> um, so yeah, firstly uh, I'd like to say happy International Women's Day to everybody. Uh, I hope you're having a good day celebrating women. Um, and uh, now we'll move on to the panel. Uh, so, we as festival organisers obviously have a duty of care to the audiences that come to our events um, and also a responsibility to the local communities that we might impact uh, that our events take place in. Um, but uh, this panel is here to discuss uh, where we draw the line of accountability. Um, if we as festival organisers are held accountable for things such as drug use, gang violence and other legal active, illegal activity that would otherwise be taking place anyway and is outside of our control. Um, and also, if we are held accountable for things unfairly, what we can do to create a more consistent approach um, across the UK in terms of organising festivals and expectations from local authorities. Uh, I have a selection of wonderful panellists here today to discuss this with me. Uh, so I'll hand over to you first, Paul, to introduce yourself. Thank you. Sorry, I was looking around me when you said wonderful. <laughs> I'll go, yeah, I'll take these off so I can't hear my own nasal overtones. Uh, it might put me off slightly. I'm Paul Reed. I'm the Chief Executive of the Association of Independent Festivals. Uh, we're a national leading trade association representing uh, around about 94 festivals in the UK, um, ranging from, you know, 500 capacity right up to... 70,000 and everything in between. So yeah, national network, uh, we support and represent those festivals. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, I'm Lauren, I'm the managing director of End of the Road Festival, which is an award-winning music and arts festival that takes place on the Dorset-Wiltshire border. Okay. Hi, I'm Chris Jammer, I'm co-founder and head of partnerships at Strawberries and Cream and the Cambridge Club Music Festivals, which take place in Cambridge. Uh, book the likes of Little Wayne, Mabel, Diana Ross, Lionel Richie, Nile Rogers and Sheik. Actually, not Lionel Richie anymore, he just pulled his tour because of COVID, uh, announcing a replacement tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It's a great lineup this year, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and my name's Yaz. I am a director at the fair. We are a festival production agency producing festivals across the UK. So that's camping festivals right to inner city festivals uh, that are dance music and are much, much less appealing to uh, the local residents uh, that we have to engage with. Um, so I want to do a kick-off question that I put out to all of you first, which is um, what your response would be to those initial questions I, I put forward at the beginning of the panel. So do you feel like the level of accountability that festival organisers have put upon them is fair, uh, particularly in relation to issues that are already ongoing in society? We start with you, Paul, because you're closest to me. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that obviously there's, there is a lot of variation across local authorities and police forces in terms of expectation. That's quite an obvious thing to say. I mean, disparity across local authorities. Does that ring a bell with you? 
Um, and I think ultimately, you know, festivals are, I don't want to resort to cliche, but they're kind of microcosms of wider society, really. So, you know, all the issues that are in wider society are compacted into festivals, you know, whether, whether it's drug use, um, whether it's sexual assault, uh, harassment and, and violence. Um, these, these are all things that you can't bury your, your head in the sand about. So I think it's, it's all about um, proactive planning and liaison with, with local authorities. But to answer your question, yeah, I think the expectations can be unreasonable at times. Um, and yeah, it can be very different across the country. You know, we had a member, I won't name names, but there was a situation in which uh, police were insisting on all of uh, security and stewards uh, wearing body cams, so body-worn CCTV, throughout the entire event. Yeah. Now that isn't practical. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really serve a purpose if it's not driven by a risk assessment, and obviously it impacts on the audience experience. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's, you know, obviously through AIF we're able to collectivise and take opinions from the other members and, and, and respond to these issues. But there's certainly a lot of variation out there across authorities. And I think that's probably something that um, COVID didn't want to mention the C word on this panel. That's in the past. We've got bigger but problems now. It's, it's, probably, it's probably something COVID's exacerbated. If, <laughs> I don't know whether the rest of the panel agree or not. But yeah. cool. Okay. And Lauren, do you think that this is something that, yeah, do you think, do you think fairly that we're held to account or, or not? I think um, I think sometimes there's um, a problem with the people that hold us to account, not really understanding the practicalities and the realities of, of running an event like ours, which um, kind of breeds a lot of the problems like Paul just mentioned in terms of body cams. Like it's just totally impractical. But on the other side of things, also picking up on something that Paul said in terms of us being like a, a microcosm of society, I think there's things in society that we'd all like to change for the better and that seems like an incredibly insurmountable task and there are people um, who are already doing wonderful things in that regard but when it comes to our own events you know it's like 15,000 people in a field where as an event organizer I can actually to a certain extent control that environment a lot more than I can the wider world and therefore it's like it's almost like we should hold ourselves to a higher standard because it's a situation where we can actually make something better yeah. than it is in the wide world. Why not make it better? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree with you there. Um, Chris, any thoughts on, on that first set of questions? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying about holding ourselves to account. It's definitely had an impact on our events, but I think also, um, Paul, as you said, there's, there's disparities across local, local, local councils, but also there's a lot of disparities between the different events we have. So I've got two very different festivals, Strawberries and Cream and, and the Cambridge Club. The, um, the friction that I have with Strawberries and Cream far outweighs what I, what I have to deal with, with with the Cambridge Club. And like the local perception of those two events is, is totally different. I can go to a landowner and, and um, try and get, well, apply to, to use, use the site for, for the Cambridge Club and be accepted and then go uh, and try and do the same for strawberries and cream and, and be completely shunned away. So yeah, there's definitely nuances uh, depending on the events you run in. Why, why do you think that is with the two different events? Well, I think well, strawberries and cream is a younger audience. So a lot of the issues we're talking about here are more prevalent there in that those mm -hmm. sections of society, drug use, the NOS canisters, um, the, the gang um, presence potentially. But 
Um, I think that's perceived to be more of an issue at Strawberries and Cream, whereas Cambridge Club, are the local, the local, the local residents that are, are much more willing to kind of go with it and, and, and enjoy it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah put much, much less of, less of a fight. Okay. Um, so obviously, this is a hugely broad topic. There's loads of different areas we could we could pick out to, to talk about particularly. I think one of the um, core areas it'd be good to talk about uh, initially is uh, drugs. So drugs are prevalent at most festivals across the UK. People don't dare to talk about it as honestly and openly maybe as, as, as we should do. Um, and I appreciate also this is a sensitive subject as well. So whilst we're talking about, so no specifics maybe while we're talking about this. Um, in terms of the festivals and events that we're organizing, I find that there's a huge disparity um, across local authorities and, and blue light authorities across the UK uh, with regards to um, the processes for confiscation, eviction, escalation to police, how happy the local authorities are for us to give potentially harm-reducing public communications about drug use and safe drug use. Uh, you know, there's a huge disparity across, across the UK. Um, and I think you know, for us that becomes problematic and it's confusing for, for the audiences that we put events on for as well, having different, different information at different events they go to. Um, I think I want to talk about first, uh, and, and head over to you Paul, um, about The Loop. So The Loop, uh, you can tell everyone a bit more about what it is, but it's an organisation that uh, is there to support festivals um, with their festival drug policies but also provide on-site testing, which to me seems like a no-brainer because we know that it's there. Um, can you tell everyone a bit more about the loop, but also why you don't think we see the loop at every festival taking place? Yeah, sure. I'll remove these again. I mean, does everyone know what MAST is? Multi-agency safety testing. Just trying to, yes, no, okay. We'll give a little bit, I mean, you summarized it really well there, Yaz, to be honest, but it, focusing in on the, the testing elements, so the Loop are a provider um, of MAST and, and basically will test samples um, you know, of substances um, that, that are brought to them by attendees. Um, and then they effectively, you know, I've been down to, to Boomtown, for example, and seen the lab that they set up their operation. It's very impressive, actually. It's, you know, they literally have a scientific lab on site. Um, and they've got a database of pretty much every known substance in the world, so they'll test that and they'll be able to tell that person what that substance is, but also uh, strength, etc., as well. And, I mean, firstly, this isn't about legitimizing drug use. There's no such thing as safe drug use, and this doesn't promote anything approaching, you know, safe drug use. Um, but I think you have to accept, as, as Yaz has said, you know, if, if you can... Drugs are part of society. If, if you can get drugs into prisons, which you can, then you can certainly get drugs onto festival sites. So starting from that position, zero tolerance is not, it's not a viable strategy. It's burying your head in the sand. So I think MAST is more about pragmatic harm reduction, um, education. You know, over half of the people that they tested on festivals in a certain year ended up disposing of the substance. You know, they found substances of uh, harm, like boric acid or whatever, people have been missold, uh, a substance that they thought was, was something else. And obviously there's a communication element to this as well, because they're doing it with the full support of police and authorities, the full collaboration. 
So you can then share that information, you can share it in real time on site as well. And it's just about trying to pragmatically um, introduce a harm, harm reduction strategy. So I've been encouraged to see a number of members um, do that over the years. The reason I think more don't, I mean, I, I think cost is a factor, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it, is, it is expensive. They are a service provider, you know, and I'm very aware that everyone's facing rising costs this year of 20 to 30% across the board. Like, the, the cost increases are, are insane and, and the supply chain pressures. So I can see how they're in that environment. Um, it might get deprioritized, really. But, yeah, we... Effectively, we, we support um, front of house testing. We have done for, you know, 2016, I think, is when we first engaged with Mast. And, yeah. yeah. And following, following on from that, um, Lauren, or, Lauren and or Chris, I, do you think that, I mean, A, is that a service you would be interested in introducing at your festivals? But B, do you think maybe this is something the government should be funding or that should be funded from elsewhere for festival organisers to keep their audiences safe? Do you I mean, I'd always welcome funding for the government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely, I believe in it and I support it and it is definitely something that we, we would look at having if we, um, if we felt that it was, like, kind of our audience was that way inclined. Um, I think that kind of I agree with everything Paul was saying in his previous point it's kind of like being able to have an honest conversation about the fact that there is drug use would allow there to be even greater kind of harm reduction standards conversations different suppliers competition in the market like I you know maybe I'm ignorant but the loop is really the only one that I know of yeah. um, and if it was something that was more commonly accepted, then there might be other options and people might take up scalable things or focus on, you know, if you're an event organizer, you probably know the most popular drugs that are coming into your festival. So, okay, we know X is coming in. Can we have a service that focuses on just that? Um, so, yeah, I think just an honest conversation will help save lives, basically. Yeah, and I think it's interesting what you said, and I definitely agree that you know if 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 everyone's supportive of having testing at events um, from the loop, like I've certainly been met with resistance to that by certain police forces before. If it was more a, a wider conversation and, and people were open to testing at events, then there would be more people offering that in the market. The cost would reduce, and we and we'd all be able to offer that. Yeah. Chris, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? I think it's an interesting one because um, that service isn't something you'd ever see in wider society, really. It's like if, you, if, you, uh, if someone wanted to test their drugs that they picked up off a dealer, where do they go? But I think the, op the option of having, having that at a festival is actually very interesting. But um, it's also something that we've, we've looked to consider, but also something we wouldn't probably um, want to discuss because I feel, feel like sometimes having it uh, there as an option and communicated beforehand then encourages that encourages more people to bring it into the, bring into the festival when actually it might not have been much of an issue before. Um, but then they, there is the issue again of cost, is like, do we as festival organizers have to bear that cost? Yeah, obviously we'd love to bear that cost, but then it is, where, where can we get the middle ground with, with government funding and that sort of thing? So I think, yeah, it's on a, definitely on a case by case basis as to my previous point as well, but um, we, yeah, we do, I think we need, some, need a bit more support in something where we can't, we can't as organizers be so down the line and on our, on our opinion on this, on this topic. Yeah, yeah, and often that leads to 
a less robust harm reduction plan because we can't be as, as honest about this as, as we need to be. And as we're going back to, it's, a, it's an existing problem in society. These people, if they're taking drugs at our festival, they're taking them in other places on other weekends. Uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not because of the festival that, that this is going on. Um, I wanted to move on to a subject where I think that actually festivals um, and, night, and the nighttime industry as well are being really proactive, independent of any local authority or government pressure. Um, and that's around safer spaces. Um, so Chris, I know you're obviously doing a lot of work in this area. Do you want to talk about what you're doing and, and what a safer space is? Yeah, sure. So um, last year we partnered with the United Nations Women UK on um, developing their, a pilot for what a safe space now should be at a festival. And that was kind of building on 10 years of research that they did um, across the industry um, with working with women and girls in marginalised groups of society about what a safe space would look like. So um, we had a massive PR campaign around it leading up and kind of drumming up some sort of uh, excitement and hype in the industry, uh, which we've got like the likes of Ellie Golding, uh, Mabel, Amory, Glastonbury um, to sign on to. And then we followed that up with a pledge. We're working with other festival organisers um, to, to sign up and kind of take, take the step to working towards a, a better space. And then what we did with the UN Women is take on a lot of their advice from, from their, their years of research and then implement four key areas on our festival site to make kind of this pilot for Safe Spaces Now. Uh, they were a Safe Spaces Now tent where people could come and find out more information about the project. Uh, there was also uh, representatives of the UN where they could, people could disclose uh, information if they wanted to report something quite in a safe way. We had 50 guardian angels on site uh, which were kind of non-imposing figures that were kind of upstanders rather than bystanders where people could feel comfortable in um, being around people that were going to take care of them. Um, we trained our security beforehand in how to deal with uh, reporting of incidences so that people felt like they could go to the security members. And then we also like expanded our duty of care um, to the public transport outside of the festival. So like looking at the Zone X sort of policy and, and getting people safely back to train stations and taxi ranks uh, on the way home. So super successful. Um, the response from it has been amazing uh, from our festival goers and something we're really keen to push on further and hopefully work with other members of the industry to like just kind of use our learnings and, and, and take it on so we can really have some change there. Yeah, so that's a really amazing case study, uh, putting something like that into place, definitely. And um, Paul, obviously AIF has um, run a Safer Spaces campaign previously. And that's something you're looking to relaunch this year, um, which to me makes sense because you obviously represent us at 93 festivals, um, where you know then there's going to be a, a single kind of minded approach across those those festivals. You want to tell us what you're hoping to achieve with that campaign and also how successful it was previously? Yes, yeah, sure. And I think. Firstly, you know, I think what Chris has outlined there is great. You know, that is leading by example. So, you know, credit to Strawberries and Cream on that. And we are looking to join the dots between the projects, so we're not, we're not just off in our corners doing different things, just so people are aware. Uh, yeah, Safer Spaces is a project that we launched back in 2017. Um, the purpose was to uh, raise awareness, really, around sexual assault and harassment and, and violence. Um, and for festivals to take a stand on it, really. So 
the key messages were around having a zero tolerance approach. It, you know, so that, that doesn't really work for drugs, but it, it does work for sexual assault. Um, around consent. And that's a real key issue as well, actually, because again, these issues don't start at festivals. They start much earlier than that. And to me, I think there's a lot of work to be done around uh, consent in, in education, in schools, and making that uh, mandatory, uh, because there is some activity in, in that area and you know, reclaim these streets. Uh, we're running some great things um, last year, but on, on a sort of voluntary kind of basis. Whereas, you know, I was reading recently that Australia has actually implemented that into the law so that by 2023, all schools must, must teach about consent. So I think, you know, as Lauren alluded to earlier, some of, you know, national policy is, is sort of out of our hands to some respect. You know, we can influence it, obviously, but that is, that is government's job, really. And although the Home Office has a strategy around, um, you know, managing violence against women and girls, it's, you know, it's not entirely tangible, you know, what the milestones of that are and how it relates to introducing consent in education. Um, another message was about not being a bystander. I think all of this messaging is still relevant. So in terms of the activity, we had 24 hours where all of the participating festivals, at the time it was about 65 festivals, um, basically kind of, you know, blacked out their websites and, and had this, this GIF, the very short kind of GIF um, with those messages really. Um, so a short animation. But then more importantly than that, because obviously, the purpose of a media campaign is it's, it's a means to an end, isn't it? It's not, it's not the end in itself. What you're trying to do is affect change. Um, and all of those festivals, and that included festivals both within AIF um, and outside of AIF as well, which is Festival Republic, so it, it did have a, an industry-wide scope, um, all signed a charter of best practice, uh, which has minimum commitments around it. Um, you know, and, and the minimum commitments, you read about them on our website, but, um, you know, it's around having clear policies and procedures in place. It's about, you know, staff training. And I think a key challenge for me is how it, um, I mean, A, how you get that messaging on site, because some of our members have shared it on site, but they're probably in the minority, to be honest, you know, provided assets, but, because it has to live beyond the flashpoint of the media campaign, because you might do that in May. Actually, you want people to be thinking about it. While, while they're on festival sites. So it's, it's that, and also the challenge of how the aspiration of the director or promoter trickles down to the first person that might be dealing with the incident, who, let's face it, may be a third party contractor, maybe a volunteer even, you know. Um, it's, it's not gonna be the promoter, so I think that's where training comes into it, really. And we think these issues are more important than ever, so yeah, we're in, we're in active conversation uh, with Rape Crisis and other, other partners at the moment, uh, piecing, piecing it together uh, to relaunch this season, so looking at the messaging, looking at the assets, but, um, you know, unfortunately it is more pertinent than ever, and, you know, it's not an issue that, that any of us can, can ignore, really, you know, and I did have some members report back to me last year where they ran events, they actually had to deal with more incidents, mm. so I don't know whether there was some sort of uh, behavior change as a result of lockdown that kind of resulted in I just think education is is, is more more important than ever really yeah. and if all of our members get behind that and harness it they've got a huge collective audience you know that's going to reach a, a lot of people so yeah that's a that's a key focus for us really. yeah, yeah brilliant 
And on that point of education, maybe this up to you, Lauren, like, do you think that we as festival organisers with a captive audience have a duty or responsibility to educate our audiences that come to the events? Um, yeah, I do, I do think so, um, because it's not, you know, we all have our own vision of what we would like our event to be, how we would like people to feel at our event, and we want that to be a safe space for people, and I think it's important um, that we take part in that education and kind of crosses with everything that, that Chris and that Paul have been saying, you know, you have guardians and we were promoting don't be a bystander. It's all those very ba basic kind of principles that you can sign up to that are about educating your audience alongside educating your staff. Mm -hmm. um, and so it does have that trickle down effect and you're coming at it from, from both sides really. Um, and you know, we signed up to the charter when it came out and like I'm excited for it to be relaunched and kind of re reinvigorated really. Um, I think there's also lots of, you know, there's lots of practical things that, that people can do um, on site that are maybe also talked about less um, in terms of like quite lo like basic logistical things, you know, making sure you have like the correct lighting in darker alleyways, making sure that you have enough like roaming security in campsites, making sure you have enough like watchtowers and, you know, kind of having enough staff around and having those kind of things thought about, like dark corners of your site. Do you have someone looking through those on, like on a sporadic basis? Like how are you protecting your audience when they're actually there in a yeah. very practical way? Yeah, I think you're right as well. There are lots of uh, inexpensive things that organizers can do to, to uphold those kind of concepts of safer spaces. Yeah. Um, obviously, Chris, you mentioned some of them as well, but I think, that, you know, even like having female-only camping or um, uh, a women's area where they can just go and seek refuge within, within an arena or, or things like that. So I don't know, if, is there any, have you got other suggestions? Yeah, I think um, a lot of the successes actually came, well, I mean, as festivals, we're obviously there for the weekend, but a lot of, a lot of what we did was communicate this message on the, lead, on the lead up to it. So people came to the festival knowing where we stood as a festival on this. So like, we were no tolerance on, on assault and, and harassment and communicating that this was a safe space, that people were welcome and, and we were putting things in place. And like, it's not just the festival itself, it was the, real, the, like, the lead up to it and really setting the agenda. Um, and I think that can really shape the kind of atmosphere we're trying to create as, as festival owners. Yeah. I mean, to me, everything you, you're all talking about sounds like you know, you're really passionate, dedicated individuals who are tackling an issue that exists within society already more proactively, potentially, than, than the government might be at the moment. Um, do Wouldn't you, be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that fits with the, with the same way that festivals and festival organisers uh, are perceived, or the public perception of festivals? Obviously, you talked about strawberries and cream, maybe not getting, having the same public perception as uh, the Cambridge Club. Um, but in reality, you know, you're all here spending time, thought and effort and money into, into, into educating your audience about a broader societal issue. Do you think we're represented fairly in the public view or, um, or, or do you think it's fair the way that the, whether it's the media or local community of, of events is perceiving, perceiving organisers? No. Bluntly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then that is kind of, yeah, as, We've, we've had to kind of take that on ourselves in a way to change um, because that we've, we've, we've obviously grown the brand from what it was um, and 
have been having a standpoint on these key issues and really shaping what the public and local authorities think of our event has actually had an impact on on how they see our event. Um, I think we felt, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed many things, I think, from us being conscious of having, let's say we're going to have a 50-50 lineup and have, have a safe space mm -hmm. and, and really try and show that we aren't this, this drug-fueled youth culture festival that they, they, they think that comes with all the bad things. So we have to, we have to kind of take the step ourselves in a way yeah. to try and combat that. Yeah. Anything to add from, from either of you on that around the perception of festivals? I think um, I think obviously having a having a really great relationship with your local authority, if you're able to, and with uh, like local residents who live around your festival site, to get them on board uh, in terms of you know understanding who you are, what's important to you, uh, genuinely like dedicating face time to engaging with those people to help them to understand that this isn't just you know you know like a drug fueled party. It's actually like an amazing cultural opportunity for like a wide range of humans to like come together and it's always quite magical and like pretty much anyone who will run an event will have like free or discounted tickets for locals and just keeping those like direct communications up is a, is a really good way of doing it but obviously like the wider PR of an event it is much a much harder beast to control um, but I think like kind of like Chris was saying, like we're doing it because we think it's the right thing to do. We're not doing it for a pat on the back. Yeah, we're yeah. doing it because it's what we believe. Yeah. And if those pats on the back come, then fine. But it's not, that's not the aim. It's not the purpose of, of doing it. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I would say this because it's the reason I get out of bed every morning, but the, <laughs> it's harnessing the kind of power of the collective, really. Um, and some, you know, the Safer Spaces campaign, in, in truth, was partially responsive because there are a lot of negative and, and quite ill-informed kind of media reports saying this is happening at festivals and organisers aren't doing anything. Um, but you know, in fairness, those same journalists, when we launched the campaign, covered it and accepted it as that's a it's a proactive step, mm -hmm. you know. And I think you know. Those festivals being able to pull together, put that in front of their audiences, obviously it hit a lot more media, it hit some, you know, national and global media and was able to reach over 15 million people. So it's like, you know, that's, that is more than, than any individual event could, could achieve really, you know, being able to take a unified stance um, on, on those issues. So yeah, I would, I would say this, but that's, you know, that's where trade associations can, can act as a conduit for that really. You know, take a unified stance on these things, and and also some genuine commitments as well. You know, it can't be. You've got to have enough kind of headroom in there for people to be able to make progress and incorporate it into their operations. But also, it can't be a tick box. So you know, we do monitor it every year, and we feel if you know, if a festival hasn't got you know basic policy in place or a, a, you know policy that specifically addresses sexual assault and violence, then they're not really upholding the charter, so they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be sat on it, you know. There has to be some element of monitoring and accountability. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's just a piece of paper you sign, and that can't be the, the case. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, all coming back to accountability, which is sort of what we're talking about here, but I guess the, the great thing with the charter is that consistency across, you know, we've got one charter that we're all looking to fulfil together, and we all know 
the expectations upon us to, to meet that charter um, and it's consistent across events. Um, so moving away from safer spaces a bit but kind of touching upon local community um, impact and perception um, final sort of area to discuss uh, I was looking at zone X and and community impact um, so obviously this this might be quite different across the different events that we have here whether that's a rural camping show for more live led led music um, or a more dance led music in a city show um, so Lauren I guess first let's go to you and understand what your your um, zone X planning and community engagement planning looks like for end of the road um, it primarily focuses around two areas, really. They, uh, local residents, they care about noise and they care about traffic. Um, incredibly narrow rural roads um, that are an issue every day outside of the event. So, of course, they're an extra issue inside of the event. And it's like another weird thing where it's a problem every day, but it's a double problem when we happen. Um, but yeah, like I, um, I know all the residents who live within one mile of the event. Like I go door knocking and I meet them all and I talk to them all. They all get personally invited. And that FaceTime is a huge part of like why we've been able to coexist so peacefully, I suppose. Um, we also work with them really um, quite involved in our traffic planning. So we use like AA to do, we have like a stop go system, but we also have somebody who's part of the parish council like sits in on our traffic planning meetings because they know the local roads. So they can say, oh, this will be a problem and you need to ban this happening here. And so it's a really like collaborative effort. Um, and with noise, it's kind of, it goes not quite as far, but like everyone will have like offsite noise monitoring. Um, but because we're a weekend festival, we don't do any day tickets. You're very much like you're coming in on Thursday and you're leaving on Monday. So the kind of the focus in terms of like audience care is very much within our license boundary. But when you get beyond it, it's kind of the it's the local impact that you're that you're trying to um, kind of protect, but also encourage. You know, like pre pre-COVID times, sorry to say the C-word, um, you know, there's loads of local Airbnbs, there's loads of local pubs, there's lots of things that we would let people, you know, people can leave and come back if they wanted to. So there's, you know, there was a line of balancing that and how that could become an issue. Um, but most people, they don't want to leave. They just, they come for the weekend and they just have fun there. So that's where we're able to focus. Yeah. And also, like you said, that, that engagement with the audit with the local community that's really personal but also I suppose in a way you're educating them about the event uh, you know that what, yeah. what the audience are here to do and, and like we were saying before it's yeah cultural. when they when they come I mean we have like 300 to 400 of them come every year and the ones who are even a little bit suspicious at the beginning after they've been they totally get it and they love it and they understand it um, and you know there's always a few like problematic personalities that don't will never get it but that's fine it's that's their right um everybody's been nothing but supportive since you know we hold like yearly meetings with them and like yeah it's just that personal touch because again like we really really do care and there's a truthful communication there's an honesty there and that's that's how you get it to work or at least i think that's the right way to get it to work yeah absolutely 
Chris, how's, how's your experience in, in that yeah, area? Yeah, slightly different to uh, end of the road. We, we, uh, the vast majority of our guests leave um, and come back to site. So we don't, we only have, we start in our camping, but growing that now. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like we just want to have, we just want to put on the best experience for our customers. And I think that, yes, that's at the festival, but that's also getting, getting there too. So we do like really try and extend, extend our like zone X areas to like getting them back onto the train effectively. So we, we extended our safe spaces policy to have guardian angels on those routes. And we've got medical and security at train stations and mobile so that we can kind of um, manage, manage that leaving, leaving our site. Um, one thing actually, the council have always been very um, adamant that we don't throw after parties, um, which is kind of, we, we always ask to do it, and, but, but that does encourage a lot of drunk people leaving our site and going into town uh, and descending on tiny Cambridge, which isn't equipped really for uh, 10,000 party goers to start kind of causing carnage on that beautiful city. Um, so we, we, do, we have stayed away from that massively and, and, and it's one thing they are, they are quite keen on yeah. kind of enforcing on us. Do you, th and you, but you think that's a fair and reasonable request from them? I mean, ideally, they'd just they would they'd ha they'd facilitate that that number of people going in because it's good for the it's good for the local community as well. Like yeah, we're yeah. putting we're selling out all the hotels in the city. Um, the nightclubs would do well with having that many people in there. Like there is a, there is a wider economic benefit for for our festival goers going into the city, but like. It's, not, it's something that they don't want to take responsibility for, I think. So if they did, if they did put up the supplies and the, the resource, then we definitely would throw after parties, but we can't, we can't extend that much yeah. further. And I suppose you'd create the after parties in the same way that you're managing your, you know, the same space at the event for yeah, people, to, people to be in. I don't have a time on me. I just want to check how we're doing for time. Coming up 10 past. Okay, great. Yeah, we're not. Um, just, just to... Because I, I think those are two really good case studies, but just to, um, as you've been asking us the questions, yeah, it's like, do you, um, do you experience much in the way of issues with Zone X? Because obviously you deal with a lot of metropolitan shows, London-based, like... Yeah, I think for me, I mean, that's probably the biggest aspect of planning that we have to do now in London, in the kind of inner city shows that we do. Um, it's what we get asked about most at the SAGs, and it seems to be what the focus is on, and whether that's rightly or wrongly, because I don't know if those pressures are pressures that they're feeling from their councillors, which the councillors are feeling from the local residents that we go past. Yeah. I mean, some examples are post-event, I have to explain in a debrief that the audience are not heroin users that are coming to our festival, because people are laying claim that there are needles littered everywhere on the streets after our festival. And I'm saying, I, I appreciate there might be some drug use, but I can categorically promise you there is no heroin use in the festivals. Um, and again, that, that sits around a lack of understanding from, from the local community about what a festival is and a fearfulness of the unknown. You know, most of our festivals are dance music and that's um, not everybody's cup of tea. I mean, it's, it's, it's a growing part of music now. So, you know, there is this disparity between our audience um, and, and the people that live in the area that we put events on. Um, and I think one other thing as well that I've found since, since COVID is an increasing number of stakeholders that seem to have a say on our event, but that sit outside the SAG, but almost hold the same powers. So one example, I hope they're not sitting in the audience, um, is TFL, 
So they now come to our SAGs um, and they will say things like, we're going to have drug dogs at the tube station so that your audience going back home on egress has to go past them and if anyone's caught with drugs, they're not getting on our trains. And I'm saying to the SAG, I think we can all see that that's a completely a completely uh, bad way to plan this for crowd management issues and also for public safety. And then I have to spend time arguing about that being the case. And the SAG is too fearful to kind of back us up, even though they probably agree with what we're saying. Um, again, I hope none of these people are sitting <laughs> in the audience, but that, these are true things that are happening now. And you know, that's just one station. TFL in another place will have a completely different approach. So. Um, for us, and it's a matter of time, it takes so much time for us to organise these events. There isn't enough time as well to have arguments with people who are obstructive but also do not understand what it takes to put on a safe event. Um, and I think that's where if we get more of that this year and then into next year and, and the, the years following, um, you know, now national highways, uh, formerly England highways or whatever they're called, are, are having an impact on some of our sides. If, we, if this keeps happening, um, you know, we won't be able to put the, the same level of planning into our events for the safer spaces, sustainability, the things we really want to bring to the event, because I have to spend months having those arguments. Um, yeah, so that's... And it's time consuming, and you know, what Lauren was saying about you know, engaging with local residents, that's absolutely critical, is that the fact that you go and speak to them face to face. Because I remember, you know, in, in a previous job, I remember working on a large London-based um, show and the previous year the traffic management had just been a mess you know passes hadn't been sent out signage wasn't put up all that sort of thing really and um, you know just record number of calls to the you know you've all got these hotlines for residents on site um, all you can do there is call a meeting and say look I know that was a complete mess that this is my plan for this year uh, that's what happened then, and I've heard, you know, I wasn't there, but I've heard all the accounts of it. Um, you know, we've got a new contractor, I'm gonna go around personally, check the signs, I'm gonna ensure that, you know, and I think most people are reasonable and responsive to that. And um, as a result, I think it went from something like having 50 calls to the hotline to like one. Yeah. So, you know, and then the council are happy because they're not getting all this resident pushback, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think ongoing consistent communication with, with that local community, but also honesty, like look, coming back to what Lauren was saying, like honesty and being genuine, you have to hold your hands up when things do go wrong. Obviously, we are perfect. Um, and, and sometimes things do go wrong or, or we make the wrong decision in a, in a, in a planning phase. And that's fine, we're all, we're all human. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's like it comes back to what I said earlier when we we're talking about festivals being held accountable. It's like being held accountable by people who don't really, like you were saying, understand what those events are and what we have to go through. And like you know, for what level do we really have to educate everyone? Do we have to teach TFL that that was a bad idea? Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> well, they're not event organisers, and I suppose they're not crowd management experts, they just know about their tiny little piece of the puzzle. Um, yeah. So, I don't, unless anyone wanted to go into any more on that, I think there was... was no? We don't want it. Okay, excellent. Uh, then I think maybe we'll ask some questions. Well, if the audience have any questions or their own issues they wanted to talk about or that they've experienced. No? Okay, excellent. Everyone's still awake? 
<laughs> My I voice sends me. appreciate you sticking around for the graveyard shift. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we've been stuck here again, haven't we? We've got to have a word about that. Yeah, we'll have to have a word with Duncan. We do have a question, though, which is good. We've got a hand. Yeah. Oh, excellent. We have a question. Do we have a mic? Oh, yeah. Hello, that was very interesting. Oh, wait, now we have to put our headphones on. Sorry, it's very confusing okay. tech. We can hear you. Okay, that's great. Thank you for that. I was particularly interested in what you had to say around your duty of care and safeguarding, perhaps for minors and uh, adults finding themselves in vulnerable circumstances, perhaps due to substance use or sexual assault and um, the provisions you are considering putting in place for those people. But I don't think at any point you considered the role of the welfare team on site at all in your discussion. So I'm just wondering what you, as professionals, see the welfare team's role as being. Yeah, I see. Does anyone want to take that first? Welfare team? Yeah. So, sorry, I've, I didn't mention how much uh, uh, input the welfare team had on our actual space space that we had with the UN Women. So it was actually in conjunction with them. Last year, we put the tent next to the welfare tent so that they could kind of work simultaneously together. This year, we're actually having them on, um, having the welfare expanded, uh, and the, the welfare team basically were leading us on a lot of their, of their input. So yeah, it was a key part of, of the campaign, um, and having them th those two places sync up together um, was basically which led to its success because it was people would come with their issues and then they'd be taken to welfare to kind of deal with it adequately. Yes, yeah, exactly the same. It's a vital, vital um, part of the puzzle in terms of where our welfare tent sits, how they, how they work with medical, how they work with our brief stewards, um, or how they work with your guardians. It's, it's absolutely crucial um, that they also work with external partners as well, um, like we did with the AIF sp Safer Spaces in terms of, you know, working with um, girls against or rape crisis and people that have like a really highly specialized knowledge. Um, they feed into our plans and how we train our staff and how our welfare kind of works. It's a very like collaborative effort, but yeah, of course they're key. Yeah, um, unless Paul wants to add anything on the welfare front, I think I agree with everything Chris and Lauren have said from we're actually kind of looking to extend the reach of the welfare team so they have a, a specific role on a lot of our sites uh, to looking after staff and staff welfare. Obviously, post-COVID, we've seen or we've talked about um, the fact that, you know, we used to probably all put in far too many hours. We need to remember to eat, drink water, take rest. Uh, so we're now making that a specific part of our welfare team's role as well. So thank you for bringing that up because if you don't have one, get a welfare team. <laughs> Thank you for answering. Um, has anyone else got any other questions? I kind of wish I was wearing these the whole time. Yeah, yeah they're um. really good. <laughs> um, as someone who's been asked to provide a safe space for an uh, event um, for this year going forward, is there anything in particular that um, you know, we should be aiming to provide? Or what do you want to see in a safe space? What, what, is, you know, what constitutes a, a good you know, uh, sort of safe space for uh, customers? Do you want to take that first, Chris? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, we, we took a lot of our direction from the UN Women's kind of um, reports and what, what their audience wanted, and we've, we've got a lot of feedback from what our, our um, 
audience found from our from our safe space this year. But it is as you said, um, there's a lot of simple things you can do, like the general kind of layout of the site, the lighting, that sort of stuff. But then also just trying to go a little bit above and beyond and communicate that message in, in, um, ahead of the event and then really executing that properly. So if you're gonna, there's so much you can do in this space and you can keep, keep going and going and making it safer and safer. You can't, we're not just gonna cure this overnight. It's an ongoing process. So it's kind of choosing elements that there are, there are solutions here, but it's just choosing those and then executing them well and then building on that year on year and collaboratively as well. Something we didn't actually mention, I think is, this is, yeah, this is an industry-wide issue and it's, and it's only gonna work if we all kind of join together on it and, and, and really like have a general standard across, across all festivals, I think. So you, you, either of you want to add anything to that? I mean, I guess looking at like the Safer Spaces Charter that AAF did is a good starting point, looking at all the things that you implemented um, as a good kind of framework to, to build a safe space um, and talk to your audience as well, you know, see what they want to see, what they want to experience, what's going to make them feel safe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, on the previous panel, you know, John Langford was talking about the Light Green Declaration being a framework. And I think Safer Spaces is, is similar in, in some respect, and that there has to be enough space for how festivals uh, can implement that on, on their site. So it's, I guess, um, you know, that, that project's more about the vision than the implementation, which I get is the easier bit as well, actually. You know, it's ultimately organizers that have got to commit cost and and planning and expertise to actually make sure it, uh, it's enacted on site, you know? Yeah, and I think something we spoke about earlier as well is just remembering that that training isn't just for the management team or welfare, but all your frontline staff, front staff, so bar staff and, and security as well, being really educated about what your safer spaces plan and strategy is. But I do feel like on a positive, like it's that, it, there is more awareness in, in wider society now, I would say, than yeah. when we launched that in 2017. I definitely agree with There's that. There's a lot more attention, you know, when you look at uh, various things over the last couple of years and the Home Office actually having a strategy now yeah. around violence against women and girls. I feel like there have been some shifts that would ho hopefully result in audiences being more receptive or understanding mm. this messaging because it's, it's more part of the broader conversation, would you yeah. agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, actually. I feel like post-COVID, there's a lot more discussion around it, and it's a lot more of an, an open conversation that I personally am having with, with men more than just with women as well. Men that I'm talking to are, are keen to learn and, and discuss, so open to being educated at festivals as well, I imagine. Um, does anyone else? Oh, we've got another question over there. The lady in, the lady in red. <laughs> Hello. Um, you've spoke a lot about like protecting women in the audience and the fans, but have you got things in place to protect the women that are actually working on site? Because obviously a lot of them are men more than women, and I think it's, that's also quite important, the women who works in the festival. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. Um, Lauren, do you want to go first? I mean, I think it's all down to that training. You know, we, we were talking about... Uh, kind of educating your audience, there's educating your staff at the same time in terms of like the briefing that goes to security, the briefing that goes to stewards, there's very basic safety planning in terms of making sure people are working in pairs, um, all, all that kind of stuff, making sure um, people kind of understand what they're doing, that they 
are protected, whether that's with PPE, with support, with radios, um, making sure that they're never out of contact, having a welfare team for your staff that work there. Um, and yeah, just kind of engaging your staff as much as you engage your audience. Yeah, and creating a safe, a space where people feel like they can escalate complaints too. That's a huge part of it. I mean, we were talking about it before, you know, so, so much of the problem around um, sexual harassment and assault is that it's not reported. Um, and if it's not reported, we can't know how much of a real, real problem it is. And that's what you were saying, you know, in terms of all your people who would be on the front line, like whoever that first person is that you talk to about what might have just happened to you is going to be have the biggest impact on how you feel about that event, whether it's, you know, somebody else who's there, like a stranger or a steward or somebody who works there, like that first point of contact is going to be the most important point of contact. And that's how we can encourage I guess people to speak up about what's happened and show them that we take this seriously. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Like the underreporting, as Lauren said, I think it's something like only 15% of those offences are reported nationally. Mm. So that's always, you know, if someone says to me, oh, our event doesn't have a problem with that, the answer is that you don't know whether you have a problem with that or not. And um, to your point, you know, workforce is hugely important. And, you know, the charter was was designed around that as well. I probably should have said that. It was, it was an audience-facing campaign, but the charter itself covered you know, workforce and, and staff as well, because it is really important. And I think what Lauren was saying there, having a sort of culture and having systems in place that, that proactively encourage reporting of incidents, really, really important point there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was one of the issues um, I found with it is it was it was the lack of awareness I think that of what what issues were going on and it's, it's really communicating that throughout from from the promoter down throughout the, throughout the um, the teams that work with you and and making sure that every kind of contributor and and, and um, supplier is, is kind of aware that this is the messaging that's going out to the crowd and and then hopefully that kind of trickles across um, to to making this space safer for our workers as well. Yeah, no, you, and you touched on a good point there in terms of contractors because it's not just it's not just the bar staff and the security staff. It's you know the contractors that are coming often from the construction background who may not have such a big dialogue about what we're talking about now in their day to day. So making sure that's communicated through your contractor packs or or however communications going out. Absolutely. Cool. Do we have any other questions from the audience? Oh, I've got another one over there. Julia. <laughs> Firing on all cylinders with the questions. <laughs> yeah. Good, good to see. Takes one to open it up. Hello. Um, so, with regards to everything that you've mentioned today, whereabouts do you want to see the industry in five years' time? It's a big question. Uh, it's a big question. question. You can have five seconds. No. <laughs> <laughs> Want it to be a utopia. <laughs> <laughs> We just need to see like some of the statistics come down. Like it, the statistic that always stands out to me is forty percent of women are experience sexual harassment or assault at a live event, and for me that's just completely shocking. And if we can bring that down like considerably in five years' time, then I think I'd be in a much happier place. Brilliant. Yeah, it would be it would be good to be in a position where the industry just has no excuse. I mean, I don't think it has an excuse, but just really, really 
line by line, easily digestible, easily achievable things that people should be doing now. And, and if they're not doing them in five years' time, they need to be held accountable. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's absolutely about accountability. I mean, there was, when we launched the Safe for Spaces campaign, there wasn't much festival specific data, um, but there subsequently have been a couple of things, including a YouGov survey that found that one in five festival goers and actually uh, two in five um, who were women and, and under 40 have been sexually assaulted or harassed at a, at a festival. That's a lifetime stat that's not tied to a particular event or year. Yeah. I think it's important to say that because it puts it, puts it in context somewhat. Um, but yes, we need to absolutely have accountability and, and just so, show some leadership on this issue um, as we are in, in other areas. You know, it, it is, it should be of equal importance to those, to those areas, you know, whether it's, whether it's climate action or whatever the campaign is. I think our industry is, is an innovative one and, and, and can be leading. And as we've seen, we can lead and the rest of society and kind of government tend to catch up with us eventually, really. But I don't think there are any overnight solutions, unfortunately, you know. I don't think there's any point at which this issue goes away. It's just a question of awareness and, and measures that you, that you have in place and commitments that you make. Yeah, as Chris said earlier, like this, it's not going to end. It's just, yeah, like a reduction in those stats and a genuinely creating safer spaces and we can see the impact we're having is, is where we should be and but we should never stop. Hope that answers your questions, Julia. Oh, excellent chat from the fair. Liberty. <laughs> Hello. Um, so going back onto the loop, what's the like response from local authorities and police when you involve them in the question? Yeah, I think it depends on the local authority. <laughs> Sorry, it's an obvious answer, but um, yeah, I mean it's. I think the collaboration of the police is the most important part of it really you know if you've got a police force that just doesn't just doesn't get that and isn't progressive i mean we've had at a national government level you know we've had conversations with the home office where you know frankly their position on drugs testing is um you know they they don't want to be seen to be proactively encouraging it but nor do they stand in the way of it like they fundamentally they get it as vague as humanly possible <laughs> absolutely and you know on a policy level you can't imagine with this government them endorsing mm -hmm. that but they certainly don't want to put uh, roadblocks in the way so hopefully that does trickle down uh, to a local authority level but i think yeah not not to give you a cop-out answer but i think it really does depend on the event um and and depend on on the authority, um, but I think it's probably worth saying, like you know, at any event that the the loop has been present at, um, there hasn't been a drug-related death, and that includes some events that previously did, unfortunately, have drug-related uh, fatalities. Really, and you know, the whole thing about identifying substances of concern. So if it's not what you think it is, but even if you is, even if it is what you think it is, but it's incredibly strong, that then opens up just a sensible conversation about dosage and you know that can result in you know festivals do have an opportunity to influence people and influence behavior change that they then take into their everyday lives you know so someone might come away thinking about their, yeah. their dosage or their substances or whatever it may be because as you said they're not just taking them in that field at that particular weekend 
Um, sorry, slight tangent, but hopefully it answered the question as best as I could. Can I ask you on that, Paul, like where, what would the, you work on a national level quite a lot. What would the route to a more consistent approach to drugs or a more honest and open conversation about drugs be uh, at a national level that would get down to all the local authorities? So it, it, there could be a bit more... Yeah, government taking a supportive position on it overtly. So, and is that the Home Office or is that, yeah, you know, is it? Yeah, so, that's, okay. that's the relevant So not for three, three or so years at least. It's like anything we've seen over the last couple of years. It's that sometimes local authorities won't budge at all unless there's some sort of directive national government directive cascading down. And that's just, it's just how it is. Yeah. yeah. And there's also obviously a risk if you're not within your local authority if your event isn't known for having a problem with drugs and you invite someone like the loop on just because you believe it's the right thing to do, then suddenly your local authority might be like, hang on, mm -hmm. this isn't the event that we thought it was. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's a really good point, yeah. Yeah. Not naming any names. <laughs> <laughs> um, great, okay. Oh, we've got another question over there. Can I just ask, sorry, it only takes one drug death to tarnish a festival's reputation. Um, so I was just going to ask, you know, in terms of actually, I know drug testing is really expensive. You know the information that you can give for free about, like, safe drug use. Do you not think that every single festival should take responsibility for that and then push that into the wider audience rather than sort of taking a step back and saying, our festival isn't known for it? If, if I could take that one, because I've got experience of this where... Yes, absolutely, I think they should all be doing that, and I think a lot of festivals do do that. I've been met with um, obstruction from certain police forces against doing that, so when you get the NEIU, National Event Intelligence Units, uh, intelligence uh, each week through festival season telling us what drugs are harmful, often at some festivals we stick up posters and we say, if you've taken this, you're not in trouble, but please come and see our medical team or our welfare team. You won't be in trouble, we promise you. To encourage them to come and seek help if they've taken a dangerous drug. Some festivals, I've not been able to do that because the police have felt that it conflicts with the zero tolerance to drug policy that we have to have. And I think that that is, that is the issue. We are going against our duty of care and our harm reduction policy in order to pay lip service to uh, something that is not a, a rational or reasonable kind of concept of what's going on with drugs across the country. So yes, I think we should be doing that, but I think sometimes we're obstructed from doing that. I also think it might be 4.30, um, and there might be some drinks going on somewhere that some people have already run away to. Um, <laughs> so uh, rather than ask the question I was going to ask, um, I think in terms of summing up, actually, you know, going back to accountability, Festival organisers do want to be accountable, we want to be responsible, we want to educate our audiences, but sometimes actually uh, maybe the inconsistency of approach that we're met with through different agencies or different local authorities can be problematic in that area. So a more consistent approach would be, would be uh, something that would definitely support the festival industry to hold themselves accountable. Um, hopefully you all agree on that. Um, is yeah. there any final comments from any of you that you wanted to round up or any advice you'd give to organisers? I think you've provided a good summary there as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> definitely. Get yeah. your safer space built. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us, guys. Go enjoy the drinks. I'm sure the guys will be up for questions if anyone wants to talk to them now.
Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Want to learn more about the show that brings together event professionals from every sector? Visit eventproductionshow.co.uk.